Good morning. In January, which seems really far away somehow already, uh, we looked at Revelation chapter 1 together and focused in on what we could learn about Jesus in that chapter. This morning, we are going to continue looking at Revelation together. Um, In chapters 2 and 3, we move from John sharing his description of Jesus um, to Jesus speaking and telling him to write letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Um, Before we read it and before we pray, uh, some things to note about all the churches that are written to. Uh, all, All of these letters begin with a reference to some of the attributes of Jesus that we went through in that first chapter. And in addressing two of the churches, Jesus has only good things to say. And in two of the churches, he gives simply a rebuke. And for three of them, it's a mix of good things and a rebuke. But in uh, the cases that he does both, he first praises before he gives a rebuke. It's not the main point today, but it's good practice uh, if you're going to share a rebuke with someone, if you can share encouragement with them first, if you have not learned that before. So after Jesus shares what they are doing, he offers counsel or promises or exhortations based on their situations to endure or to repent for example. And Jesus says to each of the churches, all of them, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These two chapters are not just for the churches that he wrote to. Uh, The first letter to the church in Ephesus is not just for the church in Ephesus. They are for all of us, everyone who has an ear. And looking around, I think that Most of you have ears this morning. So, they are to all of us. What was addressed to any one church at a specific time was applicable to all of the churches and is therefore applicable to us. So we must hear what he says to the church, and we must hear it this morning as we go through. And finally, there is in each one of these epistles or letters to the churches a promise or assurance designed to encourage the church. To urge the church to endure the trial that they are undergoing or to do the things that Jesus has called them to do. So with that in mind, we're going to uh, look at the first letter this morning, the letter to the church in Ephesus. But first we're going we're gonna to pray. So God, we thank you for giving us another Sunday that we can gather together and worship and meet with you. It is a gift. Help us to cherish it. We pray for all the other churches meeting together in O'Fallon today. We ask that you would speak through your word and that you would build them up, meet with them. And God, we ask the same for churches all across our nation and around the world. We ask that you would speak and that your people would listen and obey. And Jesus, we ask that you would shine brightly through your church as your people go to those who have never heard the gospel. May they go forth in power proclaiming the truth of your word and telling others about the hope of salvation that is found in you alone. Bless those who are laying down their lives all over the world, translating scripture and planting churches and going to the unreached. And Holy Spirit, we ask this morning for our church body right here, our church, that you would illuminate your word. Give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. Give us supple and humble hearts to accept what you have to say. Fill us and give us strength to be obedient. 
And we ask now that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 in Revelation. And then we'll go back through it verse by verse. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in verse 1, this is to the pastor of the church there in Ephesus, which was one church in the city that probably met in different groups and in different homes. And it is from Jesus, the one who holds them in his hands and who walks among the churches, is from the one who cares for them. In verse 2, it says that Jesus knows their deeds. He knows their deeds. Not some of their deeds, but Jesus knows all of their deeds. As we read in Revelation 1, Jesus is all-knowing and nothing can escape his gaze. Because Jesus knows what they have done, he is able to judge justly. He's able to give rewards and encouragement and rebuke and discipline. And many of the things that are are talked about here in these letters are things of the heart. Things, especially this one here, things that might be hidden from man, but are not hidden from God. So we are supposed to judge things based on fruit as believers. And uh, we're able to judge those Sometimes, but often somebody can fake it, at least for a while, right? They can pretend. They can put up a a good enough front that they might get past us. But you cannot fake Jesus out, okay? You cannot fake Jesus. He knows what's going on in your heart. The things that are going on in your mind, they are not hidden from his sight. Jesus has eyes like blazing fire, and he can see straight through to your heart. And because of this, because he's all-knowing, Jesus knows uh, not only their heart, but he can see and he knows their hard work and he knows their perseverance. It would seem that this church here was not a lazy church. It was not a church that gave up in the face of difficulty. They pushed through and they kept doing what God had called them to do. This is good. He commends them for it. As mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus, when saying he knows their deeds, he's starting here with encouragement. He speaks of the good that they are doing before he goes on to the rebuke, which we'll get to in a little bit. So one of the things he mentioned specifically that they were doing is that they did not tolerate wicked men. They tested the ones who claimed to be apostles, and when they found them to be false, they were gone. They didn't tolerate them. It doesn't say what tests they used, but we can be sure if you read through your Bible, they were testing their doctrine against Scripture, because that's what we're commanded to do. So when they found that they were false, they got rid of them. Okay, They didn't put up with them in their midst. The church did not put up with false teaching, did not put up with false doctrine. 
and they did not put up with evil men. And in verse 3, uh, Jesus also says that they persevered and they endured hardships for his name. Not just hardship for the sake of hardship, but hardship for the name of Jesus. So stuff was happening to them, and they didn't give up. They kept going, they kept the faith, and they did not allow it to destroy them. What specifically was going on at that time, we're not sure, but they were facing trials, they were facing hardships, and it was because they were believers. They weren't facing trials and hardships because they were being jerks, or because they were being lazy, or because they had gotten themselves into a bad spot. They might have been those things at the time, but it says that they were facing this because of the name of Jesus, and they endured those things for the sake of the name of Jesus. They continued to labor for him, for his kingdom, for his cause, in the midst of those trials and hardships, and they did not give up. So what I want to do uh, before we go into the other verses is look at these three verses and see what we can be encouraged by as a church and hear what the Spirit is saying. So Jesus shared that these first few things, he shared them as good things that they were doing, encouraging things and things that pleased him. So as we do these things, if, if you do the things that are talked about here, this speaks encouragement to you as well, because Jesus was pleased. He was commending them for these things. So Jesus sees the things that we do for him, and he sees the things that we do for others. He sees the hard work that we do. He sees when we work hard and we don't give up. And some of you here, probably most of you, work really hard to provide for your family. Okay? You work hard. <coughs> Excuse me. You work hard to provide for your family. You put in long hours. You probably maybe don't save enough for retirement because you're sacrificing for your kids. You don't go on lavish vacations because you give to the church. You do things for your wife or for your husband or for your kids or your parents or other people that no one else knows about. Things in the background. Jesus sees. He sees that. He knows. And providing for and loving your family and other people is something he's called you to do. So be encouraged. Others might not see your work. They might not think about it. Your kids at this point in uh, their life might not recognize that and appreciate it fully. But Jesus sees it. He knows. Be encouraged. Some of you work and serve tirelessly at the church here. I know you do. You come up here after working long hours taking care of your kids, and you serve. And you make sure the finances are taken care of, you make sure the building is cleaned, that this event is set up for, that the coffee is ready, that the sound works great. You serve tirelessly. And many of the things that you do, a lot of the people in the church just don't know about. But Jesus does. Jesus knows. He sees your hard work and your service, and he sees you caring for the church, his bride. So be encouraged. And some of you here, you are seen by others as you serve, but they don't really know how hard it is what you're doing and how draining it can be and how much it takes to do something over and over and not get worn out and to not get so tired that you want to give up and to not give up even after you're past that point. Even if you love the thing, you can get tired of doing things that you love. After being up here with the worship team recently, I can say, man, it is tiring. 
Okay, It's truly wonderful. I love getting up here and singing with the worship team, but it makes for a long morning. Okay, Jesus knows your acts of love and of service and what they cost you. He knows your hard work and how you feel. I was thinking Sandy Sanders has been up here on the worship team as long as I can remember being in the church faithfully over the years. Um, thank you, Sandy. Jesus sees and he knows. And Jesus is the first and he is the last. And he is the one who defeated death, the one who is sovereign over the world. And while we always, almost always crave for some sort of affirmation or praise of man, Jesus is the only one we really want approval from, right? We want to... We want the approval of Jesus. So be encouraged when you do these things. Jesus sees even if other people do not. He is the rewarder. He is the one who loves us. And he is the all-powerful one. So to please him is a lot better than trying to please man. Jesus sees your hard work and he is pleased. He sees your hard work and your perseverance for your family, for your church, and ultimately for him. So be encouraged by that. He will not forget your work, and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We can also see here that Jesus is pleased with how they handled wicked men, false teachers. So Jesus is pleased with us when we do not compromise on the truth, when we stand firm on the word of God. There are things in scripture that believers can and do disagree on. Real believers can and do disagree on things, but There are also things that we cannot disagree on and that we cannot compromise on. And sometimes standing on that truth will cost you, but it is the right thing to do, and it pleases Jesus. More and more churches are compromising and surrendering to the culture, and what it says is right and what it says is wrong. And I pray that we as a church would never do that. Even if the world tells us, and even if many churches tell us, we should compromise on things like God's word on Christ being the only way to salvation, on abortion, on homosexuality. You could go on and on with things that churches are compromising on today. We can be encouraged that Jesus sees us when we stand on his truth and don't give in. So be encouraged, church. And let me say, the journey away from truth usually starts really small. Okay, a little bit at a time. Someone will wander away from an important doctrine a little bit, trying to make it sound like it's not a big deal, but it doesn't take long before you are way off. Error always leads to more error, not more truth. Okay, It's important to know the truth. So in reading these first three verses, we should be encouraged to know the truth of Jesus and defend the truth of Jesus. He is pleased when we do that. So let's continue um, through these next few verses. After commending them and encouraging them, Jesus speaks to them bluntly. Okay? Uh, Jesus is a lot more blunt than I am. So as we read through this this morning, and I try to bring this out, I will, I will let his word speak. He says, he holds this against them. They have forsaken their first love. They may have been doing a lot of the right things, A lot of the right works, holding on to doctrine that was true, holding on to the tenets of their religion, but they were not doing so out of love. For they had forsaken the one that this was all for, according to what Jesus says right here. The church had let go of their love for God. They had departed 
from Jesus. The love they had for him was not what it once was. And now the things that they were doing were not out of love for him. They may have been honoring him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And let us remember here that this is, this is Jesus speaking. He is telling the church, referenced to as his bride in Scripture, that they have forsaken their first love. They have forsaken him. They had forsaken the one who loves them and who gave himself up for them, the one who gave himself up to make them holy, cleansing them by washing with water through the word, the one who did this to present him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. So think of a marriage in which a spouse does all the right things around the house, where one goes to work and provides for the family, raises their kids to know right and wrong. The spouse who decides, you know, not to get a divorce, but to to tough it out. Those are good things. Those are admirable things. Those are things that should be praised and encouraged. But in that marriage, one says to the other, yeah, you've done all this stuff and that's good, but you have forsaken your love for me. You go through the motions, you do some of these things, but our marriage is dead. It is a marriage in name only. We don't share the love and intimacy that a marriage is supposed to. You have forsaken me and grown to love someone or something else. You no longer show affection towards me. You're no longer excited to see me. You no longer want to spend time with me. You no longer think about me. Your love is somewhere else. Your actions, some of it might be here, but your love is elsewhere. And I believe that's what we see here. Hard work and perseverance. They're not standing for wickedness. They're doing good things but simply out of a sense of duty and not from a place of love. And that would sting, right? That would sting. It would be hurt to be the one who had been forsaken. If your spouse had grown to love someone or something else instead of you. And that's what's being described here. The church were doing things out of duty, but they had forsaken Jesus. They had forsaken their love for him. And you might say, in the Christian life, what is love, right? What is love? That we obey God's commands. That's what it says in Scripture. And you are right. That is correct. God says to love him is to obey his commands. But that does not come from simple obligation, but from a joy and a love for God. We do it. We obey God's commands because we love him. We do things for Jesus because we love Jesus. And so church, this morning, the question is, do you love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? And in verse 5, we see a call to remembrance. A call to remember the height from which they had fallen. So what does that mean? Jesus is calling to them, Hey, church, my bride, do you remember? Do you remember what it was like when you loved me? Do you remember what it was like when you thought about me and when you talked about me and when you talked to other people about me? Do you remember the zeal that you used to have for our relationship? Do you remember how much you enjoyed spending time with me? Do you remember the good things that we did together? Do you remember the joy that you used to have and the peace that you experienced in your life? Do you remember? So why this call remembrance. It's important. I think there's a couple of reasons. 
It might make them think, wow, as I remember, if only I had kept my eyes on Jesus, how good it might have been. What have I missed out on? How can I keep missing it? It might have caused them to look out and think of the good they could have done for other people if they had kept their love for Jesus. But most importantly, if we remember how good it was, if we remember the sweet times of fellowship that we had with Jesus, if we remember the joy and peace that comes from walking with him, if we remember the good that comes from talking to others about him, and if we remember all that comes from really loving him, it makes us desire that again. Right? When you think on something and you remember some of the amazing times you've had in your life, times that you just, you, you loved that, that part of your life, that experience, whatever it was that was going on, when you remember it, doesn't it make you want to experience it again? I can think on some summer camps I had that I just loved, and I'm, I'm like, wow, I, I want to be back there again. It makes me want to go to summer camp again. It, it makes me get excited enough that I go through all the work to make summer camp happen. And I can think back on some trips that I've taken with people, and I've gone to see you know, God's creation, and it was such a wonderful experience that I can't wait. I like, want to think about it and plan the next one, and it motivates me to go. And so as, as Jesus is calling them to remember, he's calling them, remember what it was like when you loved me, to call us back to wanting that again. And so this call to remember, remembrance also calls us to repentance, which is the next thing that Jesus says. He says, after remember the height from which you have fallen, he says, repent and do the things that you did at first. So turn away, come back. Jesus is saying, it's not too late. Don't stay out there away from me, loving whatever this it is that you're loving, forsaking me. Remember what it was like and come back to me. Turn away from your sin. Whatever it is that has taken over your life, whatever that love is, leave it and come back to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just leave it at repent. What does he say? He tells them to do the things that they did at first. So why does he say that and what does he mean? Often I think people hear or feel a call to repentance. And then they pray and commit to leave something behind and then wait for some sort of spiritual miracle to happen. For God to snap his fingers and fix your heart and restore your joy, something like that. And don't get me wrong, God can do that. He does do that. He does call us back. But it should not be an excuse for us to be lazy in the process. So Jesus tells them, do the things that you did at first. What did you do at first when you became a believer? What did you do in those days when you experienced that love and that joy and that peace as you walked with Jesus? Those things that Jesus calls us to remember, what are those things? What did you do at that time? Jesus is saying, do those things. Do the things you did those first days, those best days with me. Do those things. Read the word like you did at that time. Be active in sharing your faith and serving in the church like you were at that time. Spend time in prayer like you used to and be generous with what you have been given. Give of your time, of your money. Sacrifice for others and put your needs before their own. Flee from sin like you did when you were a new believer. 
Reach out to those who are wandering away. Bless those in need. Encourage those who are hurting. When you had that active faith with Jesus. Basically, don't sit on your butt. Okay? Do something. Don't simply remember and think of those good times. Let that remembrance move you to act. Be active in pursuing Jesus like you were at that time. Take up the sword of the Spirit and put on the armor of God. Rekindle your love for Jesus, not just by going through the motions because you have to, but think about him, speak of him, spend time with him, talk with him, get to know him again. If we go back to that marriage analogy, turn away from those other things that have taken your love from your spouse. Flee from them and run back to your spouse. Don't take them for granted and love and serve other things that are going to destroy your marriage. Like, what did you do at first to win your spouse? Okay, think about it. You, you spent a lot of time probably when you were first married. There was pursuit. You thought how to love them, how to show them love. You wanted to spend time with them and talk with them and show your affections for them. And if you're trying to get back there in your marriage, then you're going to work to rebuild those relationships and you're going to do some of those things that you did at first. And we need to do those things that we did at first in our relationship with Jesus. And then Jesus uh, gives a warning in this same verse. He says, if they do not repent... If they don't do what he is asking them to do, he is going to come and remove their lampstand from its place. Now the lampstand, as we talked about in chapter 1, was the church. It gave light to Ephesus. So Jesus is saying he is going to remove the church from its place if they did not repent. He wasn't saying the church would continue as it was, just getting by, he was saying the church there would cease to exist if they did not repent. Not just that it would cease to exist, that Jesus himself would remove it. So, just to be clear, Jesus is saying this right here in Scripture. If the church did not repent and return to their first love, Jesus was going to cut them off. They weren't just going to die out. Jesus was going to remove them himself. And some translations add the word quickly, saying Jesus is going to come quickly. That word is not actually there in the text, but the verb is in the present tense, not the future tense, implying this is not a far off thing that Jesus is saying when he's giving this message, but a near thing. Their time to repent was short. They needed to do so immediately, not continue on forsaking him. And then in verse 6, Jesus returns to a commendation for them. They hate what he hates, the practices of the Nicolaitans. And we're going to talk about them in some future sermon when we look at some of the other letters to the churches. But what we should see here and what's striking um, is they hated what Jesus hated, but they had also forsaken their love for Jesus. And I believe it's possible to hate what Jesus hates, but not love what Jesus loves. Or maybe a better way to say it is, it is possible to hate what Jesus hates, but not love Jesus. I'll say that one more time. It is possible to hate what Jesus hates, but not love Jesus. 
That's where the church in Ephesus was. They hated things that Jesus hated, and they worked hard, and they endured difficulties, and they did not give up. But they did not love Jesus. They had forsaken their love for him. They had forsaken Jesus while still hating some of the things that he hates. And I think we see this often in the church and in our culture today. We hate things that are evil, and that is good, and we should. We should hate evil. Jesus commends that. Jesus wants that. But we cannot stop there. Hating things does not save you. And why we hate is important, too. Do we hate things because Jesus hates them? Do we hate things because we love Jesus? Or do we hate things because of the impact that they have on us? It can be pretty easy to hate sin if we're talking about the kind of sin that we feel the pain and impact from. The kind of sin that other people do to us. And we can hate something because it hurts us, but anybody can do that, right? An unbeliever can hate sin that hurts them just as much as we can. I think we often overlook or we are not as sensitive to sin that doesn't impact us at all. Sin that doesn't hurt us. Because we can be selfish. But sin, all sin is an offense to God. All sin is against God. We should hate sin because God hates it. And we should hate evil because Jesus hates it. And we love Jesus. So we must love Jesus first and foremost. Our hate for evil has to flow from a love for him. Our hard work and our perseverance must flow out of a love for Jesus. It has to flow from there. So this the second set of verses that we, we read, what can we learn for us from this rebuke from Jesus? I think, obviously, we learn the importance of really loving Jesus. Works don't work by themselves. Works don't save us. Hard work doesn't save us. Hating evil will not get you into heaven. We must take to heart this warning that Jesus gives us. I believe that all of these letters, the seven letters to the churches, must be heeded by the church at all times throughout all history. They are good checks for us, good checks that churches must go through to see what sticks to them. Throw it out there and see what sticks, right? And so with that, we need to look at ourselves using this letter as a mirror. What do we see when we look in the reflection? And as we do that, we remember that this is written to the church. And so it may be easy for us to sit and evaluate what we think of as the church. And you look around and you look at everybody and you try to evaluate that is not what I want our focus to be on this morning. And I will tell you why. When we do that, and we think about other people, and not ourselves, and if we come to the conclusion that, yes, this is a reflection of our church, then the temptation is to see others as the problem. And that is not overly helpful. What we should do is look at this like, I am the church. I am a member of the church. I am a part of this church. I am a part of this body. 
Do I see myself in this reflection? Have I forsaken my first love? And then, if everyone does that, and we repent and we return, then the church, meaning our body, repents and returns. If we only look at other people, nobody's going to repent and return because we're all too busy looking at each other. Thinking, the problem is with this person over here. The problem is with this thing over here. problem is with our sinfulness, right? As we forsake Jesus. So as we go through each letter in the months ahead, I want us as a church, and specifically then you as an individual, as a church, to look at yourself. Where does this strike me? Where is this letter or reflection of my life? And how do I need to repent? So church, the question this morning for you is, have you forsaken your first love? And I'm not saying, have you stopped working hard? I'm not saying, you know, are you no longer providing for your family? I'm not saying you're giving in to false doctrine. I'm saying, have you forsaken your first love? Have you forsaken Jesus by making an idol of your family? Have you forsaken Jesus by making an idol of your home or of your money or your job? Have you forsaken Jesus to excel in something, in school or in sports? Your hobbies, to build better friendships. I don't know, there's a lot of different things we can forsake Jesus for. But honestly, it does not really matter what you have forsaken him for. Whatever it is, it does not compare to Jesus. If you have left Jesus to follow something or someone else, you, you have elevated something or someone else to the first place in your life, and you have left him behind, doesn't matter how good it is, Jesus is better. At some point you're going to see that. And Jesus demands your all. So if you have forsaken your first love, if you have forsaken Jesus, his words to you are, repent. Repent. And this is important. Remember the warning from Jesus If you do not repent, I will remove you. And if you look through history, from what we can tell, the church in Ephesus was not actually there very long. By all accounts, it seems to have died out and vanished. It would appear that Jesus removed them. And I believe it would be presumptuous for us to think that Jesus would treat us differently than the church in Ephesus. In verse 7, wrapping up the letter... Jesus says, he who has an ear, again, us, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So church, do you have an ear? Yes, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Through the scripture this morning, what Jesus is saying, hear it. I pray that anyone in our church who has forsaken Jesus as their first love would return to him. So let us be obedient to Jesus and his call here. If we have forsaken our first love, let us repent and do the things that we did at first. Recapture our love for Jesus. We can go out and we can pray for people and we can share the gospel and we can serve at the church and we can do summer camps and do all these different things. But if we are not doing that out of love, if it's not because we love Jesus, we're not going to be getting anywhere. 
And if we do that, if we, if we recapture our love for Jesus, if we return to him, then we have a beautiful promise that awaits us as he says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So to the ones who do this, who hold fast to Jesus and who give their lives to him and trust him, to the one who overcomes this world, eternal life awaits. Not just life forever, but a blessed and happy life forever. When things get hard and you've got to push through, let your love for Jesus and your thought of that future fuel you on. So in conclusion... And in response this morning, um, as the worship team comes up, I want us all to take a little bit of time and ask ourselves, as honest as we can, as we sit here, have I forsaken my first love? Have I forsaken Jesus? What is the Spirit saying to me through God's Word? I'm not up here accusing anybody. I'm literally reading what Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling us we've forsaken our first love to repent and do the things that we did at first and so if the answer is yes you've forsaken him whether that's by you know a large margin you're like wow yeah i i have forsaken him and my life is a mess right now or you're just starting to slip i ask this morning that you and us together as a church would repent before jesus our sins they are many but his mercy is more so come back and if you come to the conclusion you know what jesus has been working in my heart he's revitalized me he's restoring me and and i'm walking with him that is awesome if he occupies the first place in your life and you love him like that uh, i ask that this morning you would get on your knees and you would pray and beseech the lord on behalf of your brothers and sisters in this room who need to return to their first love I believe without a doubt there are those of us in here who need that. I also believe that all of these letters are going to speak at different points to our church um, as we go through them. And finally, if you are here and you've come to the conclusion that you haven't trusted in Jesus, I encourage you to repent and to trust in him. He alone can save you. He alone can satisfy you. And nothing else will. And believers, we need to remember that. So the worship team is going to play softly in the background here for a couple of minutes as we reflect and as we we pray before we sing a couple of songs together. As we sing, as you pray, feel forward to or feel free to come forward to repent, to get on your knees, to cry out to the Lord, or just to sit there in quiet reflection. But I ask that right now, together, we seek the Lord and we return to our first love. So pray with me. Jesus, your eyes are like blazing fire and you see all. And you see our hearts and you see our minds this morning. And you see the things that we do in secret and the things that we don't want anyone else to see. And Jesus, you... And you alone really know whether or not we have forsaken you. And your word, Jesus, is like a sharp double-edged sword. And your voice is like the sound of mighty rushing waters. And you have spoken your word to us this morning through this scripture that we have looked at. And we ask that you would move our hearts to repent. 
and return to you, Jesus. Have mercy on us, O Lord, and revive us for the sake of your name. Help us to remember the height from which we had fallen. Help us to remember how good you are and how good it is to spend time in your word. How wonderful it is to pray. How amazingly sweet fellowship with you really is. We ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning what your spirit is saying to us. So we ask that you would speak to us now as we wait upon you.